Hello, and welcome to Culture Exchanges, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. Today on Culture Exchanges, we are in conversation with Darren Bonaparte on wampum diplomacy. Wampum, small beads made from shells, were at the center of diplomacy in North America in the early 17th century. The exchange of strings and belts adorned with wampum were diplomatic tokens, gifts, and most notably, treaty markers between Europeans and indigenous peoples. Darren Bonaparte is a cultural historian from the Aguasasni First Nation. He's a frequent lecturer at schools, universities, museums, and historical sites in the United States and Canada. He has written three books, several articles, and a libretto for the McGill Chamber Orchestra's Aboriginal Visions and Voices. Darren is a former chief of the Mohawk Council of Aguasasni. He is the creator of the Wampum Chronicles website and historical advisor to film and television. He currently serves as the director of the Tribal Historic Preservation Office of the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe. Hi, Darren. Uh, really great to have you on this episode of Culture Exchanges. Uh, I thought before we dive into the diplomatic history of wampum belts, I'm hoping you could speak about the wampum belt shells themselves. What are they and where can they be found? Thank you for having me. The shells are all found on the Atlantic coast. They were one of the things that the colonists stubbed their toes on as they were walking ashore. They're the quahog shell, which many call the hard shell. If you've ever had clam chowder, you, you've eaten wampum. And the other shell, which was actually used probably first, would have been one of the many varieties of whelk. So that's the shell that you hold up to your ear to, to listen to Atlantic City. So those shells, before Europeans came to North America, the shell that everybody really used were the whelks. And they were used by the native the coastal tribes to ornament themselves, to decorate themselves, and probably use them in ceremony. The trade in shells predated Europeans. They are found all over the eastern seaboard as well as into the interior. So they came up the river routes, the rivers that emptied into the, the Atlantic. All the tribes that lived up and down those rivers eventually got a little bit of the shell articles because they show up think as far as the Great Lakes in archaeological sites. So the reverence that people had for those shells was widespread. And also over on the Pacific coast, I think they used dentalum. I'm not even sure what that is, but they, they had the same kind of thing going on out there. So I think it has a lot to do with the fact that people understood how important water was. So the things that came from the water especially those things that were organic yet durable, which those shells are. If you take a, a clamshell, properly care for it, it's going to last for a long time. And that was made by a living being. So I think it has that special character of being organic, yet completely hard and durable, yet you can also use it to uh, manufacture things out of it, take some effort, but it can be done. So you had right there a special artifact for indigenous people that transcended the different tribal divisions that was revered universally. And so when colonists showed up, 
they realized how important those shells were to the coastal tribes. So they thought, well, why don't we use our tools? We've got drills, we've got saws, we've got grindstones, you name it. And they began to commercialize those shells. Uh, it became an industry. They employed the form that they knew very well in Europe, the tubular shape, and uh, began to make those beads. And then when the natives that they were dealing with saw the tools that they were using, they took those tools and began to make the beads themselves. So it was both uh, an indigenous and a colonial enterprise. It was, I call it, an interface between the two widely different cultures. It kind of uh, caught fire. Everybody loved it. And I think even the culture, the indigenous culture, adapted to this new item that was available. And we began to use it. Even the, the tribes that lived far from the coast that weren't necessarily involved with the trade with the colonials, they also used the, the beads that came through trade and began to use it ceremonially. And some tribes even began to weave them into belts. And some call them collars. Also, they were used to ornament people. You know, people had ornamented themselves with the shell beads previously. Well, they continued to do that. We have numerous examples of little cufflinks and glisses, headbands, wristbands, you name it. Everybody who had a lot of the beads was using them for that purpose, in addition to the ceremonial aspect. And so, that artifact that it's a hybrid of native culture and european technology and it created something new something new is was uh devised out of those beads and it kind of became like a turning point for the relationship between the natives and the colonists that they now had something that could transcend the language differences the culture differences brought a lot of exchange between the groups so a lot of the groups that maybe were a little hesitant to use all of the trade goods thought, well, this will be a, a good start at least to, to get these wonderful beads. So I think it all began with the, the whelk. So you have this kind of white, off-white bead, which Native people love anything of that color they took as, as very symbolic and wonderful. And so then, as time went by, I think probably within 20 or 30 years, they began to incorporate the darker quahog shell. And so those were used and turned into beads of the same size and uh, nature as the other beads. And so with the introduction of the quahog, they call it black or dark wampum, it all kind of creates this binary, a dualistic set of beads, you've got the light, you've got the dark. And that came to represent the cosmology of a lot of the tribes, in particular the Haudenosaunee, when we got our hands on the purple and white beads. That evoked to us our creation story, which is all about celestial beings coming from the heavens, interacting on earth, and creating essentially a polarized world with the nighttime and the daytime we associate those with the twins of our creation story 
So we have one twin who dominates the daytime world and one twin who dominates the nighttime world. And so there's beads that go with them. That might be just my personal leap of faith <laughs> interpretation of, of how it all shook out. But to me, it suggests that whenever you use wampum, you're invoking those primordial celestial forces. You're uh, recognizing them. You're recognizing yourself as continuation of our creation story. It continues to go on through time. It doesn't end. It's it's like a Star Wars trilogy. It just keeps going on and on. And so it kind of encompasses the past, the present, the future. So when you employ wampum, it's like you are acknowledging that those creative forces are present, observing what's going on. Your use of wampum is of prime importance, and it's meant to be eternal. So when you enter into a covenant with somebody, using wampum, that's for all time. That's forever. And of course, yeah, some of those relationships did not survive the test of time. You know, sometimes we switch sides, we join the other colonies, whatever. But I think it was very significant that we had a culturalized way of looking at these new artifacts. It fit right in perfectly as if it had always been there. And in fact, when you ask a lot of traditional people, when you ask them about the origin of wampum, we have legends for all of that. We have stories. So it's taken, it's taken root in the culture in a way that is, is very natural. It's when us historians start to fret about, well, when did it specifically get made? When did these tubular beads? That doesn't have much bearing on, on the living culture because they already have stories to account for the use of it, the origin of it. And so it's a fully indigenous thing in our minds. But the reality is that it's a hybrid of European and indigenous beliefs and technology and culture. So I think it's wonderful. Of, of all the things that I study in history, wampum, it's so beautiful. I have, you know, real wampum beads that I just treasure. And I also have all my replicas. And when I have them all set up in an auditorium or on a stage at a school or a university or a museum or wherever I go, when people first see them all hanging on the racks that I set up, they're stunning. They're just, they just blow you away. And I've had so many students, for instance, would come up to touch them. They, they just can't resist. They beg me to let them <laughs> touch the beads and hold them. I had one girl taking the actual quahog and whelk beads in her hands, and she didn't want to give them back. She said, these belong in my hands. I can't let them go. And I said, well, you can go online. There, there are people selling the exact same beads on various websites. You can go on eBay or whatever and buy them. You know, it's expensive, but they can be had. So I should also point out that the wampum period of time was not very long. Its heyday began in the early 1600s, and it kind of faded away as of an official formal interchange. That started to fade away, I would say, around the time of the War of 1812. So just over two centuries of time was the heyday of wampum. And the early 1800s was the last time we start to see the British and the Americans employing wampum. 
officially to you know engage us in conflict or wars there is a wampum belt held at the six nations community in ontario that was supposedly created during the war of 1812 and i'm not sure ex the exact specifics of it but that was about pretty much the fading away of that tradition because then the the reservation period kicks in and everything changes uh, United States and Canada move into a period where they say, all right, it's a new game in town. We're the conquerors. We're not going to entertain your, your notions. You know, you guys are going to be on reservations and your artifacts, we want them. So collectors swoop in on Native people, offering money. They want to buy these for their own personal collections, for museum collections. And some Native people participated in, in the, the beads leaving. So I'm, I'm getting a little bit out of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, out, no. I'm going off here. History. Sorry about that. And, but, um, you know, quite a beautiful art form. I love how you laid out the, the origins and, and kind of where it... And, and really, the, the short-term uh, period in, in history as a historian, as you know, that's just the blink of time. So yeah. I wonder if we could back up just a little bit and talk a little bit more how wampum became a tool for diplomacy between North Atlantic Indigenous peoples and European settlers. And really, how does this fit into the larger context of the history of this relationship? Well, I don't know the exact moment of what tribe and what nation it was probably the Dutch. That's that's a, a pretty certain thing that the Dutch colonists coming up on shore. And then not soon after, you have English colonists not too far away, all making contact with those coastal tribes, beginning to make inroads. And around the time that wampum began, you have Henry Hudson making his way up the river named after him, the Hudson River, getting as far as the Albany, New York region which is where our river, the Mohawk River, met the Hudson River. And so in that area, there were the Mohican people, and they were an Algonquian tribe that were enemies of our people, the Mohawk. And when I say our people, Mohawks, I recognize that the Mohawks of today are basically an amalgamation of not just the Mohawk people, but other Haudenosaunee tribes, as well as Abenaki and you name it, any any tribe that's in that region, their DNA is in our people today. So we had an open door policy where natives were brought in, didn't matter what nation or what tribe, they could be adopted ceremonially and made a part of our population. So that's what I mean when I say Mohawk, that's, mm -hmm. that's just a, an identifier that we use today, acknowledging, of course, that we're really made up of all the different tribes in the whole region because of all the wars and migrations and our policy of taking people in. That's actually a strength of our people. And some archaeologists even acknowledge that the taking in of captives and you know people we adopt actually made us physically stronger, built up our immunity, made us genetically able to withstand to a, a better degree, the diseases that came in and decimated other populations. So the more isolated tribes that didn't take in a lot of newcomers all the time, some of them did not fare so well when faced with 
foreign uh, contagions and, and diseases and things like that. So that, that turned out to be one of our strengths. So who would have thought all that raiding and capturing people and adopting them would, you know, end up becoming one of the things that allows us to survive a coming cataclysm. And that is not to say that all of the contact was negative between tribes and between the natives and the colonists. Obviously, there, there were times of peace where we exchanged and traded and, you know, got to know each other and began to work at chipping away at the linguistic boundaries between us until we start to understand what we're saying. But having those beads and having those ceremonies that arose from the use of those beads allowed us to get beyond that linguistic hurdle till the point where we could actually have people learning how to communicate exchange between the two different cultures. Yeah, really, really a, a, an excellent form of cultural exchange, right? I mean, these these beads were were given to these newcomers, these settlers as tokens of, of peace. And, you know, obviously history has, has unfolded in a way that perhaps didn't land as well as they had hoped. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit more on how the early settlers worked with the indigenous peoples, specifically around the wampum tradition and the wampum cultural heritage. Well, a few things emerged from the employment of wampum belts. When you start to use the purple and white beads, first you start off with some very geometrical patterns, things like diamonds and squares and uh, sometimes human beings. Other things are depicted in the symbology that is woven into the belts. So what you see in, in the colonial record is that a kind of uh, meta language emerges using those symbols. So this the symbols start to have a universal quality to them. So when you see two people on a belt holding hands, that implies that an alliance or a friendship has been struck between two different groups. When there is a band between them and they're holding what seems to be a rope or a chain between them, that suggests that there's a, a real alliance and that there's a path of peace between them. The covenants, uh, they're getting more elaborate. And when you see diamonds or squares or rectangles uh, side by side in a row, it's implying that there's now a more formal alliance of multiple groups. So that, that kind of basic language starts to emerge. A lot of that has actually survived, um, even though a lot of the belts have left, left our possession. The knowledge of the, the symbols and the metaphors that came with it, they're still talked about. So a lot of times, like a belt will show up in an auction, people will look at it and say, oh, well, this is obviously an alliance or a support. The most common metaphor, believe it or not, is actually a diagonal bar. And you see them, uh, there's an old photograph floating around online of a wampum belt that uh, actually a display of a whole bunch of wampum belts. And I think at least nine of them have diagonal bars represented. And there was also a bit of a, a convention about, uh, you see this mentioned in the literature, that if a belt was white, it implied peace, friendship, and the symbols, of course, would have been purple. But then also they say that if there's purple beads, I mean, the purple background with white symbols, well, that may uh, imply a more negative thing such as war you would you might see a purple belt with a white tomahawk depicting a war belt or you might see human figures in white 
the the rule of thumb is that those belts related to mourning, uh, perhaps warfare. So that wasn't always like like I said, that was just a rule of thumb. It didn't always apply. The rule of supply and demand also took effect. You would make a belt based on the quantity of beads you had. So for instance, if you had a lot of purple and a little bit of white, well, you threw out the rule of, well, this is going to be a, a negative belt. This is going to be a positive belt. Right. So I think, I don't know how, how those rules really uh, played out, but you do see it mentioned in the literature, but they're to be taken with a grain of salt. They also say that the more beads in the belt implied a greater importance, a greater gravity to the affair. So if you get a little skinny belt, that may just be like a standard kind of opening draft kind of thing, whereas a bigger belt implies this is a really significant event that is a really memorial kind of thing that that is being devised. So there's those rules of thumb, purple mm -hmm. meaning darkness, white meaning positive, love, friendship, whatever, and the size matters. Those things are there, they're present. So a lot of that kind of knowledge survives even into modern times, even if the story of a specific belt may have been lost by its absence when it took off to a museum. Sometimes the story went with them, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes the story didn't come back when we repatriate the belt. But quite a few of them, we can actually reconnect to their original story, their original context. And some of them we can't. There are a lot of what I call mystery belts that come back to us that we're uh, engaging in a process of trying to figure out what does this belt go to? Now, there are thousands of pages of colonial documents, some of them published, some of them still sitting in archives. So a lot of our researchers, not just Haudenosaunee people, but other tribes, Abenaki people, you name it, we're all poking through the same archives, looking at those old records, trying to link speeches to the belts, because that's really what a belt is. It's material version of words that are spoken. And it's those words that are supposed to remain attached to the, the belts themselves through time. So you had to have a, a, a tradition where you had a wampum keeper whose job it was, was to memorize the stories that went with each particular belt mm -hmm. so that you may have to come back and break it out again someday. You may have to take it to a new council to remind, say, the British that, hey, remember when you promised this? We're holding you to it. It's That's a right. sacred covenant. You have to you have to live. Yeah, up. they are early forms of, of storytelling, you know, as a, as a leading scholar in this space, or certainly one of them on your website, the Wampum Chronicles, you discuss one of the most famous belts. The two rows wampum belt, yep. uh, which is described as a white wampum belt with two rows of purple. You mentioned this earlier, running across the belt. Uh, over the years, there's been much debate uh, about the belt's meaning. For our audience, can you expand on the boat and canoe, in quotes, uh, versus the, quote, covenant chain of peace and friendship interpretations of this? Oh, belt? This is one of those, I don't know, want to say a debate, because a debate implies that there's actually people arguing and talking about it right now, whereas mm -hmm. it was really a thing that came up about 10 years ago. What I will explain to you is that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy 
came in possession of a document which purported to be a Dutch transcript of the original treaty with the Mohawks that the document says happened in the year 1613. And the Confederacy decided, well, we're going to celebrate the 400th anniversary of that relationship and decided they're going to reenact the whole boat and canoe metaphor by having a real canoe trip down the Mohawk River to the Hudson and then down to New York City. It was a big event. There was a lot of people that participated. Where that boat and canoe comes from is that we have a contemporary oral tradition that a lot of the Haudenosaunee leaders talk about is to say that when the first colonists came ashore and met the Mohawks, they were given a two-row wampum belt to say, basically, these two bands represent you and us sailing side by side down the river of life. You are in your ship, and in your ship, you have your Dutch language, your religion, your beliefs, everything, your material culture, it's different. What we have in our canoe is our own language, our own customs, our own traditions and beliefs. What's good for us may not be good for you and vice versa. We didn't know the meaning of vice versa, but I'm just using that. And so as long as we don't try to interfere in the steering of the other's vessel, we can sail side by side down the river of life as friends, as allies, as trading partners. It's just that we have to respect the differences and not try to interfere with the others. So uh, it sounds wonderful. It sounds like a, a, a unique, beautiful, harmonious metaphor. People hear it and they fall in love and they think, oh my God, let's make two row wampums and put them everywhere. And one of the other things we say about that story is that that was accepted by not only the, the Dutch, but then the British when they took over the Dutch colony and it became New York. And also by the French and by the later emergence of the United States, they say also the British, when they got relegated to Canada and Canada became its own country, they kind of imply, yeah, they kind of agreed to that too. And we also say, this is what we have always said. So that's the contemporary story of European contact as relating to a specific wampum belt, the two-row wampum. You can pick any Haudenosaunee person from one end of the Confederacy to the other. And not only that, but other indigenous nations embrace that concept and perfect, wonderful, you know, this is where all the confetti goes flying into the air and we're all happy and wonderful and it should end right there. However, you would think an event like that would appear in the colonial record. No, it's not there. There's nothing. There's nothing about a boat or a canoe. Also, the history of wampum itself, which I discussed when I first started speaking, doesn't suggest that when we met our first European, we already had the art form of wampum belt making and that we had indigenous made wampum beads ready to be woven into a belt. Um, maybe not. So the real history doesn't quite match this contemporary oral tradition that we love so much and is so sacred and so dear. So at some point, scholars reacted to this plan of the celebration of 400 years since 1613. So when 2012, 2013 came about, 
some scholars of New Netherland, the Dutch colony, and also scholars of that have studied the archaeology of the Iroquois got together and said, this is not real history. This isn't what's reflected in the accepted, understood history of the Dutch. The timing isn't right. The, the first contact with the Mohawks wasn't in 1613. It was much later. There wasn't peaceful relationships between the Dutch and the Mohawks. In fact, it was pretty horrible and violent. In fact, the chief was murdered by even going near the Dutch. They emasculated him. It was horrible. So where's this kumbaya moment on the shores of Albany? There's just no record of that. And furthermore, and I'm, I'm kind of guilty of this too, because I weighed, into, I weighed in on this so-called debate by writing an article to say, we don't even actually have the oral tradition of the Haudenosaunee correct in this case. If you go back in time and search the colonial record, you will find in the 1740s, an Onondaga chief actually at a treaty in um, Pennsylvania gave a speech where he described our story of first contact. And then four years later, you have Sir William Johnson, the superintendent of Indian Affairs, who lived in Mohawk country, by the way. He also records a speech where he is recounting what was taught to him by the Haudenosaunee people about first contact. It matches almost word for word what the Onondaga chief had said in Pennsylvania. So that metaphor that is used to describe it does have a ship. But the ship is tied to the shore with a rope to a tree, and then the metaphor evolves. That's implying that we met the first Europeans at Albany and tied the ship to a tree. But then they say that we worried about the tree falling down or the rope rotting, so we replaced the rope with an iron chain that was tied around a rock on the shore, and then the iron chain began to rust, so they replaced it with a silver chain, which was tied around a mountain. I know our metaphors are kind of crazy like that, but what it's implying is that the European is always in a ship. He's always tethered to the shore. As this relationship evolves, he's temporal. He may decide to leave. We're the thing tethering him to the shore. We're the tree, and then we're the rock on the shore, then we're the mountain. So the relationship is between us as the ship and the tree. It's a rope. It evolves. There's more trade. Suddenly, it's an iron chain tied to the rock. Then the relationship becomes the silver covenant chain tying the ship to the mountain, which is implying Onondaga, the people of the hills. So it starts with the Mohawks and then includes the other nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. Not only that, but these same scholars also believe that the, the Confederacy itself is a reaction to that incredible change of European contact that uh, we decided to solidify our friendship with the other Iroquoian tribes to the west of us, because we sense that this relationship that the Europeans have with the coastal tribes could be to our disadvantage. They're, if they're getting new trade goods, weapons, axes, tomahawks, even uh, 
arquebus and muskets and things like that, we're suddenly at a technological disadvantage to those other tribes. And that's what actually emerged in that colonial period was an arms race. A technological change was upon us. And you simply had to get involved in the, the European trade. There was no waiting it out, hiding out in the woods, making, you know, continuing to make clay pots and flint arrowheads and spear points. No, you had to get your hands on these new European goods. Sometimes it was the European goods that made it before even European people because of those existing trading networks. So the presence of Europeans inflamed those intertribal rivalries that we previously had. Now, that is not to say that we were always in a state of war with, with other groups. No, there was, there's evidence of extensive trading between the coastal tribes and the ones way into the interior, into the Great Lakes and beyond. So those trading routes imply peaceful relationships between the different groups. But they weren't always peaceful. Archaeologists will tell you there's evidence of, you know, wholesale slaughter and violence. But that's only occasional. If there was constant warfare, there'd be no people any, anymore. But so there obviously was trade and movement. And so the European presence with their industrialized pots and pans made of metal and, and their new firearms they were starting to change the balance of power. And so people were wise enough to say, we have to find out who these people are. We have to get to them and, and get involved in the trade. Mm -hmm. So that's why those Mohawks went to Albany and the Mohicans are whispering into the Dutch ear, oh, those are the bad guys. Those are the bears. You don't want to talk to those people. You better do something severe to keep them away. So that's evidence of that rivalry and the change of the balance of power has been suddenly shifted. That's the real story of wampum and the colonial times. Our actual metaphor, as evidenced by that Onondaga chief and Sir William Johnson, that is the real story that people told about European contact. It's a completely different metaphor than the Indian in his canoe next to the sailing ship. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's important for us to understand. It shows the foresight of our ancestors that they were hesitant, but they knew they had to get involved. It wasn't a kumbaya moment where everybody's sitting there, you know, we're going to be brothers sailing side by side. So to me, learning about the real covenant chain metaphor and that original story of European contact suddenly makes the boat and canoe metaphor seem like a 20th century, a, like a newfound created story. What it implies is that there's a sense of equality between the native and the settler. Our ancestors did not see us as equals. I'm sorry, folks, but that is my conclusion, is that we saw the Europeans as temporal, that if they didn't live up to the principles that we were sharing with them, as embodied by the rope and the chains, we could unravel them and let them drift back to where they came from. So it wasn't a metaphor of people on land setting roots down. Nope, they're in a boat. They're, they can leave. But I just reject the whole concept of, well, we're in our little canoe next to the ship, and somehow that's equal. No, it's starting to sound more and more like some kind of Boy Scout camp, campfire tale, a more modern thing.
And you have to understand that this story emerged after the Indian Act came in, after uh, New York State imposed elected governments, after all the, the U.S. laws where they, you know, are trying to just totally take, pull the rug out from under Indigenous nations, make them citizens and all of those kind of things. So it's a modern reaction to a very troublesome present. It's looking back into the past and trying to find a little bit of equality in an unequal situation today. Looking at the past through rose-colored glasses, in a sense. And studying the literature, studying the documentation, you can actually see how the metaphor emerges. They were, they were in, in, invoking the metaphor of boat and canoe in the late 1800s in speeches, but it wasn't associated with a particular wampum belt until time went by. And I believe it was probably Chief Jake Thomas, the late Cayuga chief from Six Nations, and Roy Buck, who was also a chief. I'm pretty sure this is the, the, the gentleman's name, that those two individuals really seized upon the opportunity of looking and, and doing the same kind of work I do of trying to connect real wampum belts with speeches in the colonial record. They did that work long before I even became aware of any of this stuff. This is like, you're talking about maybe the 1960s, the 1970s. So that reconstruction narrative did the same thing is that they were looking for belts, they're looking for stories to try to rebuild and reconnect people to the past. And so that's what I think happened. It's a natural process. I'm not saying, oh, Chief Jake Thomas was a liar and he made stuff up. No, I do the same kind of thing is when I'm searching into the past, my mind is trying to connect the dots. It's a natural human impulse. And maybe Jake Thomas just didn't encounter the speech given by that Onondaga chief in the 1740s or the words of Sir William Johnson. But I do know for a fact that Jake Thomas did embark on a project to reconnect the great law of peace of the Haudenosaunee, basically a written version of it that he found in the archives. And he was trying to say, uh, okay, we're going to look at the known wampum belts and see which one might apply to which part of the great law. There, there are some several very large belts that are returned to the Onondagas today. One is called the Hiawatha Belt, the other is the Evergrowing Tree, and another is the Adadaho Belt. Well, based on what was recorded about those belts, it's pretty clear that they relate to the story of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the founding, which we call the Peacemaker Legend. What he did is say, okay, well, these belts, no doubt, are, are related to that. But then he started looking for other belts that were known, that were being repatriated to say, well, maybe this one relates to this part of the great law. So it was basically him putting his best foot forward to say, we can probably connect the dots with these belts, with this story. And there's also evidence that maybe some of the belts that he was looking at actually had another story already, but he just decided, no, it fits our purposes better today if we call yeah. it this. So that's kind of what I've been able to do in time is now that Jake Thomas is, you know, he's passed away. I think he died in the 90s. I'm not sure, early 2000. I, I just can't remember offhand. But 
a lot of people are trying to pick up that same uh, track that he was on to continue to rebuild the narrative. And so that's what I've done is took a look at what he did, what others have done, and trying to sort through it all to reconstruct people to uh, the past. In 2013, when they were planning the big 400th anniversary and they did the two canoe, the, the two rows of canoes going down the Hudson River, that was a, a real big public event. But when those scholars stood up to say, well, we, we have our doubts that this, this is really based on a real event. And so all it did was put the, the scholars at odds with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and various public speakers about it. So it, they, there had already been a little bit of a chasm between the scholars and the living Haudenosaunee based on old other disputes about history from the past. So it just kind of brought those divisions back forward. So uh, me being a history guy, I've kind of committed myself to history, basically the past. I don't feel my role is to confirm or go out and prove what our Haudenosaunee leaders or chiefs say about any particular aspect of the past. That's their call. That's their job to convey their particular position as a person who descends from the Haudenosaunee and is a historian. I don't feel like I really, that's not really my purpose. There are other scholars out there who are from our communities who feel that is their highest calling is to go out and prove whatever the chiefs are saying about the past. I don't feel that that's, uh, I'm not required to do that. My obligation is to the real historical past, to find out what really went down, to understand why people say what they say today about the past, and to take all of that into account and, and try to come up with what, what probably happened. As the biblical scholar Bart Ehrman is fond of saying, that's what his, a historian is, is somebody who's trying to determine, based on all the lines of evidence, what probably took place. You can't say for sure what actually did, because we can't go back in time and look and verify, but what probably. And you have to use Occam's razor and all those other things to say what most likely happened is the real story. So. Yeah, I mean, a historical interpretation certainly is not linear, and I do encourage folks to visit your website, The Wampum Chronicles. I thought we could bring the conversation to more uh, present day, and as a collector yourself, I'm hopeful that you can share a little light, and, and how would you describe the current relationship between Indigenous communities and the private collectors and institutions that have wampum belts in their collections? Uh, we know that there's, there's a lot of wampum belts that are still out there in the public realm. Private people own wampum belts that occasionally show up on the auction block and they're going for thousands and thousands of dollars and we try to put a stop to a lot of those auctions and th there are other uh, museums that have wampum and usually people find out where they are so for a while there was a little bit of uh, animosity between the native people and museums and collectors and stuff because they felt threatened by you know, the fact that we're actually repatriating wampum belts. And I think New York State Museum in Albany and also the Smithsonian and the various museum in, in New York City began to repatriate collections of wampum belts back to the Confederacy starting in the late 1980s, I believe. 
and into the 1990s and it's still going on in fact that's part of one of the one of the things i do as as the tribal historic preservation officer is to negotiate the return of not just wampum belts but human remains ceremonial things so that's a continuing thing in fact i'm working on three wampum belt repatriations at present and also involved with a big exhibit which originally uh, started in France, a number of museums and organizations did a great big exhibit of wampum belts that were in France. So now those same wampum belts are back in North America. They're at the Ganondagan Museum in Western New York, south of Rochester. So they're on display now. And then in October, those same wampum belts are gonna travel to Montreal, Canada, and the McCord Museum is going to have them on display for several months. So I'm involved with the curator, uh, Jonathan Laney. They're going to have not just those belts from France, but also the collection that the McCord Museum has of local wampum belts. And also he's, he's engaged other museums across Canada, and I think maybe even some private collectors, to have all of their belts brought out and put on display so with, with that amount of wampum belts that are, are going to be present in, at the McCord is what Jonathan says is most likely the biggest public display of wampum belts ever. Wow. I wow. mean, this is massive. It's going to be the, the, the historical event of all time. I mean, even in the colonial past, there weren't that many belts at any given council. So this is going to be the most epic display and hopefully the Haudenosaunee Confederacy will bring out their own collection of repatriated wampum belts that they've gathered. And they bring those out for readings of the great law of peace. Whenever there's a big recital of the great law, they usually bring all of their repatriated belts, put them on tables and let people come up and take a look. And it's, it's amazing to, wow. to, to actually be in the presence of the Hiawatha belt and all these 300-year-old belts to, to actually be able to touch them with your own hands. It's, oh my God, you can't get a more Indiana Jones type moment. You know, you can hear the choir of angels and it's, <laughs> it's pretty impressive to see them for real. I mean, do you see like an emergence of real attention to, to this art form kind of happening in real time right now? In other words, like where do you see the future of wampum belt uh, art form and diplomacy? Well, to me, we're living in the golden age of wampum, the current time. There was a past golden age for wampum, which I said ended in the early 1800s. But now we're in a new era where the, the belts are coming back home and other belts are emerging from their hiding places to educate us, to entice us, to challenge us. And also, there's another great thing is that people are making real wampum beads again. You can go online. I think Wampum Magic is one of the websites where you can buy hundreds and hundreds of beads if you can afford it. It's still pretty pricey. And a lot of people are still using glass replica beads and beads made by hand. The beads I, I've used for my reproductions, and I've made over, uh, I'd say, about two dozen wampum replicas. I use handmade acrylic clay for the beads. I don't make the beads myself. They were made by a lady named Tara Prindle Block. She was an archaeologist, and she made all these wonderful replica beads. So that's what I've been using in, in my um, 
when I go out and teach wampum to schools and stuff, I use those kind of replica beads. I can't afford to have belts made of real quahog and whelk, right. but I do. I do have a couple strings that I employ that I let people hold in their hands and and feel the real weight and polish of real wampum, and it, it always has that wonderful effect on people. So we're we're entering into a new era of wampum appreciation and availability and also the fact that the the late astronomer Carl Sagan long time ago when they were transmitting signals into outer space he devised kind of a a visual symbol which looks like a wampum belt to me which was transmitted into outer space as kind of a greeting call to any alien civilizations out there so it was a binary code that was transmitted by the Arecibo telescope into the heavens that had a deliberate pictograph depicted that an intelligent society would be able to easily figure out. And it was a representation of our solar system. And a human being was even woven into this image. Not that it was actually woven, but that's going to go on for millennia. That yeah, signal okay. that we're sending into outer space is a wampum belt that is going to transcend eternity, just wow. like wampum was originally intended. And it wow. connects us again to the cosmos that the purple and white represents. That's so, a wonderful way to, to circle back to its origins. And how exciting for you to be a, a scholar, a creator, and a historian in this space as it's emerging into a, a very timely narrative. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I, I feel enlightened and uh, having received a masterclass in the history of wampum diplomacy and creation. So thank you, Darren, very much for helping us and our audience understand this history much more clearly. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchanges, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guest on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy.